0: We're back in the book of Luke, obviously. Today we're doing the Lord's Prayer. So let's set the context again real quick, uh, if you've missed one. um, Jesus is in the middle of a long section of the book of Luke where he's training his disciples. So he's taught them already on a whole bunch of different topics. Um, uh, And then he's sent them on a mission, and they came back and they did the whole debriefing of the mission. He's taught them about... Uh, neighboring and love, and that's kind of what we did with the Good Samaritan for the last three sermons we spent in just the Good Samaritan. So now it moves into the the teaching for his disciples on prayer. Um, So just to set the stage, right, put it in the flow of the biblical story. We were created at the very beginning of Genesis, right? Humanity was created um, from what theologians call the dance of the Trinity, the dance of God. And I've talked about this a lot, where the Trinity, the, one of the cool things about the Trinity is it's not just one God, right? Inside the Godhead, there's three of them. And they perfectly love and serve the other two. And so there's this sort of what they call the dance of the Trinity, where they're constantly loving the other two members of the Trinity. And so, and they're constantly in relationship. And that's what the Bible means when it says God is love, right? It means that inside the Trinity, before humanity was ever created, the very essence of God is love. So we were created as an overflow of the dance of the Trinity, right? We weren't created because God was lonely or because something was wrong with God. We were created to participate in that perfect love that happens within the Trinity. But what happened was, in Genesis 3, we told God, actually, I don't want anything to do with this, right? I don't want to be a part of this dance. I don't want to defer and serve and love you. I want to be the center of the world. And that was the first sin. And so the story of the Bible is... um, is God putting things back together, right? God fixing what we broke in Genesis 3. And through the death and resurrection, um, that, relationship is, um, that relationship with the Trinity can be restored. And there's this beautiful section of, I want to say the Gospel of John, but I'm just taking a guess. I think it's John, where when it says that when Jesus, uh, when he died, there was this big, giant, thick curtain in the temple That was between the room where God's presence resided and the room where like, the priests did all their work and the rest of the temple. And there was this big curtain, and right when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in half. And that was symbolic of now you can enter back into, in a new way, you can enter back into this this relationship with the Trinity. And prayer is one of the main ways that we as followers of Jesus do that, right? Um, I got a couple quotes here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've talked about before, he said this, The thing that keeps one going in the Christian life is prayer. Communion and fellowship with God. It's something that is absolutely essential. I'd go further and say that the Christian life is really impossible without it. Um, And then there's another old Scottish theologian. This guy John Murray. He said this. uh, It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. uh, Of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people and his people commune with him in conscious in a conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of a cold, metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and the apex of true religion. Right? This is the whole point of our religion is to be united with Christ and to commune with the Trinity and prayer is how we do that. Now, every follower of Jesus would say two things if they're being honest. One, everything that I just said about prayer is absolutely true. Okay, that's what we believe. And number two, none of us actually live like we believe that. Right? If if you look at our lives, that's not like we we don't really do this take prayer as seriously as we should. Something is keeping us from From acting on what we really believe. It's not that we don't pray, but I mean, I don't think we pray as much as we should, as passionately as we should, right? So, why? What are some reasons? Well, there's a couple, right? We get distracted, don't we? You know, dear Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Boy, I'm still mad about that check swing with the Giants and the Dodgers. You know, and then wait, why am I thinking about that all of a sudden? I was just praying for people in our church you know okay we don't always feel like it right we're the feel like it generation where everything has to we have to feel it before we'll do it which is completely backwards of the way the rest of the world has always worked um that they'll act to pull their feelings along and we always have to let our feelings pull our actions along so we've kind of switched that um Sometimes we just are discouraged because we'll pray for something and then it's, you know, whatever we were praying for isn't the, we don't like the way that it turned out. You know, um, you, know you can think of a million examples from your own life where you pray for something and that's not how it went. Now today's passage is going to specifically address three of these issues of why we don't pray. Uh, the first one is we don't know how to pray. That's another one, right? Just sometimes we don't know what to say or how to do it. Uh, we don't know what to pray for. And then the third one is we don't have a real sense in our souls of who we're praying to. right? So uh, he's going to address in our passage today all three of these. Now, before we get into the Lord's Prayer, there's a couple of little quick just housekeeping things uh, to talk about with the Lord's Prayer. If you noticed in the Luke version of the Lord's Prayer, it's shorter. Okay, so uh, here's the two versions of it. You can see that the prayer, the exact prayer in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Matthew... Uh, gives us is longer than the one that Luke gives us. So there's some sections that he leaves out. Um, let's see, the first part is pre- Our Father, who art, this is, I think, from the King James' chart, I don't know, who art in heaven, right? As we all know it. Um, and then it leaves out, uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is, uh, Thy will be done. As in heaven, so, okay, this is like a weird translation, but you know what I mean. You can see, right, like there's some big chunks that are not there. So what's going on here? Is it the same prayer? Is it a different prayer? There's two options. The one is that it's the same teaching, and if you remember, Jesus taught in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So all of these guys had a conversation with Jesus in a different language and then are translating it, and translation is never one-to-one. So in some Gospels, you'll see they say, Jesus says blah, blah, blah. And then in the other gospels they say Jesus says blah 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 blah. <laughs> right? Like it's very similar and they all mean the same thing, but the translation is just a little different. That's that could be going on here a little bit. Um and it also could just be that um Luke shortened it. He didn't give the entire prayer. And it could be that even Matthew shortened it, and there was more to this prayer in the original teaching that they didn't they didn't pass down to us. That's the first option. It's the same teaching with just some minor differences. The second option is that Jesus taught them the same prayer multiple times. And in different times, Jesus shortened it. Or the setting was different. Because um, the Sermon on the Mount, we already read the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. But if you remember, Luke actually, he'll move things around out of chronological order to make theological points. So, the, But I don't know. This could be a different teaching. Um, I think it's probably the first one right, where it's the same teaching, just sort of shortened or... It's fine. Okay, the second little housekeeping bit is the final clause of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So if you read it in the um, King James Version, has that ending. But remember, the King James Version of the Bible, without getting into it, is based off of some not-as-good old manuscripts as the Bibles that we have now. So the King James has it. The ESV, which is what we read in church here, Um, And the NIV are two, another popular version. Both of them just leave that ending out. Uh, The the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, puts it in brackets, kind of like it is up here. Um, So here's what's going on. That ending, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Right? We know that from the song. uh, I think if you know the Lord's Prayer song, is in there, you know. Uh, is not in any of the earliest, earliest versions of the Bible that we have, those early, early manuscripts. Um, The first place that it showed up is there was a book that's basically the first book written by Christians after the New Testament. It's called the Didache, and it's like this how-to-do-church manual. And that phrase in the Lord's Prayer in the Didache is in there, and that's probably where it comes from. So what probably was happening was it was that phrase... For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever, amen. Was part of an early Christian song that they started tacking on to the end of the Lord's Prayer while even some of the apostles were still alive, probably, while John was, was probably still alive. So it is a very early, early Christian, like you know, part of their song and part of their prayers, but it probably wasn't in the original teaching. So um, that's why a lot of these versions leave it out. Alright, now let's get into the actual text. Um Verse 1, now while Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. All right, so Jesus was praying. Remember, we've talked a lot about the nature of Jesus Christ. That we tend to think of him in terms of divinity in the evangelical church, right? We think of Jesus as God, which is true. Um, But what happens is we, a lot of times, forget about the humanity of Jesus and how he lived his life here as a, a full human being empowered by the Holy Spirit, but in the same way that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that Luke constantly... Uh, portrays Jesus doing is praying. There's a whole bunch of times, in and John does this as well, but especially in the Gospel of Luke, we see instances of Jesus praying before he picks his disciples, before he goes to the cross. There's all these moments. I think before the transfiguration, he's up there praying. Um, Jesus prayed a lot. And so remember also how the, the disciples were taught, how this worked, was our teaching settings in the Western world kind of work like what we're doing now. Right where one person shares information, you guys listen, you take it in, you learn from that information. Right, Um, discipleship with first-century rabbis, especially, was a lot different. It was more of a, um, hey, come live with me and watch and see how I live. It was like an apprenticeship on-site where you you lived with a rabbi and you there was teaching like what we're doing now, but there was more than that. There was the rabbi wanted you to sort of absorb his personality and be like him, right? And that was the point of discipleship. And so these disciples are just hanging out with Jesus all the time, and Jesus keeps praying and praying, and they're listening to him pray, and they're probably thinking, boy, I'm not that good at praying, <laughs> compared to obviously, compared to Jesus. Hopefully that's most people's reaction. Um, and so they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And I love that Jesus' answer isn't, aren't you a Christian, stupid? You should already know how to pray, right? Like, I mean, kind of, that's sort of how... Prayer, we sort of treat it like as soon as you're a believer, you should already be great at this. And you should just know how to do it, right? As if you can't learn how to do it. And then the one example we have in the Bible where somebody says to Jesus, Hey, teach us how to pray. Jesus goes, Okay. Right? That's comforting, right? Because if you're not great at praying and you don't pray as much as you should and you don't know what you're doing, okay. Right? But Jesus says you can learn how to pray. And the other thing that Jesus says is, but when you pray, right? He doesn't say, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. And if you decide to pray, this is how you should do it. That's not what he says. He assumes that even if you suck at it and you're a believer, you're going to do it anyway, right? When you pray is, doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for actually praying, right? All right. So what does this prayer look like? Look at verse two still, uh, just verse two here. Um, He says, when you pray, say, I want to say one quick thing about that too. I think in one of the other, in Matthew's version, I think it says, I didn't actually look this up, but it says more like, uh, in this manner, pray, or pray like this. Okay, so should we pray the Lord's Prayer exactly word for word? I would say yes, we can do that. We just did it, <laughs> obviously, right? So yes, we can do that. But at the same time, this is not only like a written prayer that you just recite like a magic incantation. This is also a teaching on prayer. Pray like this is kind of what he was saying as well. So we can pray this prayer, but we also want to pray in this way. So how does this way, what does it look? The first thing he says is Father. Now, um, a lot of you probably, if you've been around church at all, you've heard that this is the Greek word Abba, right? Like, isn't that a band, right? A terrible band. (laughs) All those musical, yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, So Abba, right? Now, you may have been in church and you heard some pastor get cute and be like, it's actually the Greek word for daddy, right? It's not true. That's not... <laughs> All right, let's be honest. It's, it's the Greek word for father. It's a pretty good translation. Now, um, maybe we could say dad. I, we don't want to run the risk of irreverence. That's not what Jesus was, you know. I mean, I've been in a worship service... Uh, you know, you guys know I went to like a Pentecostal college, and I remember being in a chapel once, and the worship leader kept going, Daddy God? And I was like, oh, gosh, this is cringy, you know? Like, this is hard to watch, <laughs> right? We don't want to be irreverent. I mean, I don't know if they were being, but we don't want to be irreverent. We want to approach God with a sense of seriousness, but at the same time, you know, he's Dad. Right? Dad might be a better translation. That's the word we use in English to talk. Very few people in our culture say to their dad, Father? You know, that's like (laughs) some little British kid in his school uniform. You know, father. You know, that's not what we do. We say dad, right? So, dad is probably a pretty good translation. Now, why this is important. In the ancient world, when, or let me say this first. When you meet, if you go to England, right, you meet the Queen of England. Anybody met the Queen? Yeah, me neither. Uh, If you, (laughs) next time you're there, right, you guys go to Europe sometimes. You meet the Queen of England. She's walking down getting a hot dog or something. You say, hey, Queen, right? No. Uh, There's a whole etiquette when you meet the Queen of England. They give you like a paper, and I've seen like online a printout of the paper they give you. It's like you have to never turn your back to her, and like before you leave you have to bow and walk backwards, and you have to call her something. You can call her ma'am. After first you call her your majesty. There's like a whole list of rules. In the ancient world it worked the same way with like these idols and these false gods, was a lot of these pagan religions had these big elaborate, this is how you have to address our god when you're in the temple or whatever. And so coming along then, Jesus says, call him dad, right, because he's your father. Now, there's a few ideas there. The first is we're part of God's family. We're the children of God, and that's how we approach him, right, as children approach their fathers, good fathers, hopefully. Um, The second thing, though, is it's also, uh, remember, this is the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, when you talked about your father, you talked about obedience. This was not an, you know, uh, we're very dismissive of our parents, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> in the Western world. But in the ancient Near East, that was completely unheard of. Um, and in the East today, a lot, you know, like when you talk about your dad, you, you think about obedience. And so uh, when you're praying, Father, you're really saying those two things, right? This family relationship, we're adopted as children of God, but we're also obedient to our perfect uh, Heavenly Father. All right, let's keep going. So he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So in the ancient world, uh, names, people thought of names um, as virtually being equivalent to the thing itself. You know, and you see this in the Bible, where naming something is very important in the, in the ancient world. And so there's tons of significance uh, wrapped up with your name and your identity. And so what he says here is, Hallowed be your name. So what does that mean? What's Hallowed, right? That's a funny word. Anybody use that in a sentence ever when you're not praying the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hallow- yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's not really a word we use a ton, right? And what it means is to make something holy, to set it apart, to treat it with reverence, to treat it special, right? To put something over here and say, this is special. Um, in the ESV and the NIV, they keep the old kind of translation, hallowed be your name, the CSB, which is a translation I really like, the Christian Standard Bible, they say, holy, um, may your name be honored as holy. Um, the, the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase, may your name be kept holy. Right, so that's the idea, God's name to be holy. Now the second question then is, who? Who is the prayer about? Is it, Lord, we want to make your name holy, or Lord, you should go out and make your name holy? Which one of those two things is it? And the answer is yes. Right, uh, It's probably both. Uh, And it's left vague on purpose, right? There's there's sections like in John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name, right? That's, Lord, you go do this, make your name holy. And then there's other sections like in the Psalms, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So all throughout scripture, I mean, I, I literally picked two verses out of hundreds that I could have done for this, right? All throughout scripture, we see both of those intention. And so I think this prayer is two-sided. Lord, you are absolutely sovereign. Make your name great in the world. Um, let the world see how great you are. And at the same time, guide us to do things that will let people see how great your name is. Right? It's kind of both of those. Lord, hallowed be your name. Like, Make your name holy. Um, and this is important, too, because uh, have I talked with you guys at all about the Acts prayer model? Do You guys know about this? Okay, so I went to a Christian high school, right? And I don't remember anything because I wasn't a believer from Bible class and stuff. I, for some reason, I remember one thing. It was my Bible teacher in like seventh grade or whatever taught us the Acts prayer model, which is just a model for prayer. You address the Lord, uh, A, C is confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which is asking for stuff, right? The Acts prayer model. Now, I remember like thinking about this for a long time, and at one point I realized something, that um, in... As you read through the Bible and you look through the prayers of the Bible, one of the things that really stands out is that like 90% of every prayer in the Bible is that first one, the address. The, the A from the Acts prayer model. The, the Father, hallowed be your name, right, kind of part of it. Now, it's really interesting, especially in the Old Testament. You read some of these very long prayers, and almost all of them are Lord... You know you showed up with Moses and you freed the people from Pharaoh, and you took them through the desert and into the promised land, and like they just go through the Old Testament, here 's all the things you did, and now let us not be destroyed by the Assyrians or whatever you know what I mean it 's like the the part that we spend most of the time doing in our prayers is the shortest piece of biblical prayers, and the time they spend the longest doing is the shortest in our prayers. What they're doing is they're getting themselves in the right headspace. Lord, this is who you are. We want your name to be holy. We want to remember the things that you did. They prayed more about who the Lord is than the things that they wanted from the Lord. Right? And I think that's really interesting. And that's kind of what he's saying here is, Lord, uh, hallowed be your name. And then he moves into your kingdom come, which is uh, all about like who the Lord is. right? There's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Babylon, which is this oppressive... Uh, unjust system of sin and evil and oppression that we see in the world. And then there's the upside-down kingdom of God, where, um, you know, I always talk about it like a triangle, like a pyramid, right? Um, In the kingdom of the world, whoever is at the top, everybody else is supporting them. The kingdom of God is you flip the triangle upside down, and you've got to push your way to the bottom to support everybody else. And the bottom capstone is Jesus himself, right? And so there's this upside-down kingdom of God, And the thing is, when Jesus came to earth, that kingdom was inaugurated. The kingdom got going, right? But what we know from the flow of the New Testament is the kingdom is not yet. We call this the already, but not yet. So when he says, your kingdom come, I think what he's saying is a few things. He's saying, pray like this. Ask God for you to be able to help bring the kingdom to earth in the way that you fight and stand up to the system of Babylon and the evil in the world through humility and love. But at the same time, pray your kingdom come is also, God, we cannot wait for the day when your kingdom comes in its fullness. It's here now and some, some, like right now we're just eating the appetizers. We can't wait for the main course. right? And so pray for both of those things. Pray that you'll make great appetizers while you're here and then pray, that, pray for that main course to come along eventually. All right, so now the prayer moves, let's keep going, moves from prayers about God to it moves to prayers about us. Uh, Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. All right. So the first thing I want to point out here that you may not have ever noticed is that all of the prayers about us are about us and not me. You see that every this is plural. All of this language here is plural. It's not give me my bread, right? It's give us our bread. Because the assumption is that when church people get together, they pray. And the early church is a great example of this, right? The early church prayed. Acts 2, Pentecost, what are they all doing? They're hanging out and they're praying. Acts 4, when the apostles are arrested, is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. And they all get together, and it's one of those, Lord, this is how great you are. You know, they get arrested and, I think, beaten and the church gets together, and they do one of those amazing prayers about who God is, and then at the end of it, their actual petition is not, please help us to stop getting beaten. It's, please give us boldness. And then the whole place shakes. San Francisco earthquake, right? That's one of my favorite parts. Acts 20, where Paul gets together with the Ephesian elders for the last time. And what do they do? They all sit around crying and praying together because Paul's like, I'm going to go die, and I'm never going to see you guys again. Um, The early church was a prayerful church, right? So we want to... Remember that as a church, right, is this is us, not me. So let's look at each of these petitions then. Give us each day our daily bread. So if you know the Old Testament, you probably know the story of manna and the idea of, like, after the people were freed from Egypt, they were wandering around in the wilderness, and one day they're complaining about the food. 're not enough food, you know, and uh, sounds like the girls, right? And um, I'm hungry in the back of the van constantly, right, whining to their dad, right? So God goes, okay, I'm going to give you manna, which is like this Sweet bread, kind of stuff. And so the manna, you know, shows up. And one of the, the interesting parts of the story is God says, You can basically only have enough for today. Every day I'm going to give you manna, but you have to believe me that every day there's going to be manna. So some guys go, I forget the exact story, some guys go and get a whole bunch and they hoard it and then they all get sick, right? Isn't that what happens? It's like, I told you, like, I'll give you enough every day. And then just the last day of the week, because you're not going to collect it on the Sabbath, just take enough for two days, right? So the story of manna was like very much a part of the history of Israel. So Jesus then tells them to pray. Keep praying for the manna. Pray for daily bread. That's what this is a reference to, which means God, pray for God to continually provide for you. The next thing he says is forgive us our sins. Right? You guys know this verse. First 1 John 1:9. 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Our sins were forgiven at the cross. But our salvation is still a process that's happening to us right now. Right? God is, is, um, is constantly saving us through the work of Jesus. Martin Luther said, actually today's is uh, Halloween, you guys all know, I think you heard that, right? Um, but did you know it's also the anniversary every March 31st, uh, March thirty first, October 31st is the anniversary of when Luther nailed his uh, what's-it-do hickeys there to the door? And Wittenberg. So it's Reformation Day too. So happy Reformation Day, everybody. And pretend my shirt isn't uh, whatever this is pumpkins and bats and spiders. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But happy Reformation Day. All right. So Martin Luther said this all of life is repentance. Right? That the Christian life is about constantly repenting of sin and bringing that sin before the Lord. Um, Confession is a big part of our life, and it should be a big part of our prayer life. Um, and it's one of the ways that God uses to make us more holy, to move the sin out of our lives by us bringing that sin and confessing to him. All right, and then the next thing he says is, as you forgive other people, right? You guys know the parable of the unforgiving servant, you know, the servant that wouldn't forgive. Basically, this guy owed like a billion (laughs) dollars, and in their culture, it wasn't like, oh, now your credit score is ruined. You know what I mean? It's like you can't buy a couch. It was, um, they would throw you in prison. It was serious business. And it didn't make a lot of sense when you think about it, Go to prison until you can pay your debts. How can I pay it? I'm already in, pri- I'm in prison. I can't work in here. You know, I don't know how it ever people got out of debtor's prison or until somebody pays your debt for you. Basically, this guy owes like a billion dollars and his life is over. So the king goes to him. Hey, actually, I'm going to forgive your debt. He's like, hey, thanks. Walks outside. There's a guy who owes him like 500 bucks. Hey, give me my 500 bucks. And the guy says, ah, oh, I, you know, I don't have my wallet on me. Ah, throw him in prison. You know, and then the king finds out. He's like, dude, I just forgave you a billion dollars. You can't forgive that guy 500 bucks. right? And so Jesus says, when we pray and we confess, we always remember, Lord, forgive me of my sins as I forgive other people. right? I don't want to be the, that, that servant. And lead us not into temptation. And then Matthew adds, but deliver us from evil. right? So let's talk about this, temptation and testing. Um, this prayer, this part of the prayer, takes a very realistic view of life. A lot like the Psalms. That life is not peachy and easy and everything is always roses, right? That that's not how life works. Life is hard. It's full of trouble. It's full of temptation to sin. All of that weighs on us, right? The world is full of evil. It weighs on us. Um, There's an interesting section in Matthew where Jesus is talking to the disciples right before the crucifixion there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So, He's telling them, you know, I want you guys to sit and pray, but remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, I'll read you this quote here. Do I have this? No, I don't have it in the slides. Um, this is a guy, David Garland, who wrote a commentary on this section. He says, Temptations were viewed by some in Jesus' day as sort of spiritual muscle builders for the faithful. Jesus' model takes the, exactly the opposite approach. He says, don't test me because I might not be able to hold up. This prayer becomes a humble admission that we are vulnerable and we are likely to succumb to any temptation. So in the first century, Jewish folks were like welcoming temptation because they thought it was like a spiritual workout. Look at, I overcame this temptation. Look how good I am. And Jesus' prayer is the opposite of that. He says, Lord, I can't do it. (laughs) Right? Don't, Don't let me come into these trials and temptations. There's a humility here. I can't do this, Lord, in my own strength. So lead me, but lead me in your strength. Okay, so that's the model for prayer. Now Jesus, let's keep going, teaches, um, teaches on the idea of prayer, right? He, he, he continues. And I want to say real quick that um, at first I was going to do these two separate. I was going to do the Lord's Prayer, and then we are going to do this. And I decided to shorten everything up and do it all at once because there's a key at the end of this whole passage that really helps us understand the Lord's Prayer. So I'll read this to you. First, he tells them a parable. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. All right, so here's the parable. There's a dude, there's these two guys live in this town. One guy is at home, asleep with his family. The other guy is at home, and a friend of his comes in from a long journey, which was very common in this culture. Somebody traveling, you'd go stay with a friend. Guy shows up, dude, I'm so hungry, I've been walking all day. Do you have anything to eat? Ooh, fridge is empty. Okay, let me go ask my neighbor. He goes and bangs on the door, and he asks the neighbor. And basically, Jesus says, will the guy refuse him food? He basically goes, of course he won't. He'll give him He'll he'll end up giving him the food. Now, um, the key to understanding this is hospitality culture, right? I have a neighbor uh, downstairs that we're friends with. His name's Simon. He's a great guy. Uh, He played in like the Premier League and stuff. He's like an old uh, soccer football player, right, uh, in England. And uh, he's he's a really nice guy. And if I had a friend over and I didn't have enough food, and I went down and I banged on his door at 3 a.m. and I said, "Hey, Simon, do you have any hot dogs? Uh, My friend is here." Okay, Simon would probably give me hot dogs, but on the inside, he'd probably be pretty steamed, (laughs) right? Did this guy really just bang on my door at three in the morning? That's Western culture. This is Near Eastern culture. We can't take the way that we think about hospitality and etiquette and everything, and then put it on the this ancient Near Eastern culture and think we can understand it. And I think the way that a lot of this parable, times this parable, gets read is doing exactly that. In this culture, hospitality was everything. And so Jesus' point is, of course he's going to help you. If he doesn't, the man's going to go to the next neighbor, and he's going to say, do you have any bread? Because Tim didn't give me any. Then they're all going to wake up the next day, and they're going to be like, why didn't Tim give him any bread? And all of a sudden now, Tim is going to bring shame on his entire family and his entire clan. And so Jesus' point is, of course he's going to help. But the, the language here gets a little confusing. Let me show how I think we're misreading this a lot of times with Western eyes. Um, it, it, all, it all hinges on this phrase at the end, yet because of his impudence. Um, there's a really tricky Greek word here. and You guys know I like, um, I'm not great with the Greek. I can read the guys who are, though. Right? I kind of read Greek. I can get around, right? Um, but what I studied was this Greek word is really tricky. So every translation translates this completely differently. Watch this. The CSB says, because of his boldness. The NIV, which we re- we saw in the um, LUMO project, because of his shameless audacity, the NLT, because of his shameless persistence, the NASB, because of his shamelessness. All right, so there's two issues here. Who is the word describing? Is it describing the guy who went to ask his friend or the friend? Okay, it could be either one grammatically in Greek. The second thing is, well, let me say first, um, I think it's actually describing the second guy it's not describing the first guy it's not saying because of your boldness he's going to give you food it's saying because of his something he's going to give you food because of the guy whose house you just knocked on so what does the word actually mean the word having a sense of boldness was actually a much later use of the greek word Um, the earlier word is actually shameless right because of his because he's without shame he is going to give you food and that's actually, in that list of translations I just read you, that's the way the, the New American Standard Bible was written in, or translated in, like, the late 70s, updated in the mid-90s, and then they just updated it again. And in their update, this newest one, it's not even my favorite translation, it's super clunky, but in the new, tran- it's because it's very word for word, or, yeah, word for word. <clears throat> in the new translation, though, that just came out in 2020, sorry, um, They they translate it shameless, Um, meaning the guy at the house is without shame, or is is like the backwards way of saying he's an honorable person. Okay, and so remember this is an honor shame culture, and that's why this interpretation makes so much more sense than if you just bother him, he'll give you stuff. Now go pray, right? Is that (laughs) line up with anything else we see about? The teachings and prayer in the Bible. Not really, but that's how almost every Westerner kind of reads this, and I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, He's not saying badger your neighbor and he'll help you because you're so annoying. He's saying, in this honor and shame culture, the person you're asking is a person of honor, and that's why he's going to give you the bread. Um, There's a guy who wrote a book called Jesus, the Middle Eastern Storyteller. He says this. Now suddenly, he's explaining what I just said. um, Jesus' story takes on a whole new meaning, yet because of his lack of shame, he will rise and give you whatever he needs. The parable is focused entirely on the neighbor in bed. The request for bread is now something that will succeed because the sleeping neighbor is the one that's being asked. Right. So he says, let's attempt to re-paraphrase this verse. He says, I tell you, the sleeping neighbor will not get up and give his friend bread because they're friends. The neighbor will get up and give fresh bread because he's a man of honor, a man who will not bring shame to himself or his village. And then suddenly, Jesus' story takes on a whole new theme. Fresh bread for the surprise visitor will come through the door, not because of the nature of the request or the relationship with the neighbor. This confident request is anchored in the honor of the neighbor in bed. I think that's what Jesus is really talking about here. The parable, like I said, isn't just keep bothering God and he'll give you whatever you want. It's bring your requests to God because he is the ultimate picture of somebody with honor. He's the ultimate picture of somebody who is holy. And that's the person, that's the the God that we're praying to. And then with that in mind, all of a sudden, this makes a little bit more sense. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Right. So all of a sudden now, the encouragement is to come to the honorable, perfect father boldly with these various requests. But again, God is not obligated to give you whatever you ask for. That's what he kind of talks about here in this, this, the last section. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, is going to give him a fish, uh, Instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, uh, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? All right, so this verse here is clarified with this section here. Okay, so ask and it will be given to you, right? We, this has become like the prosperity gospel's favorite verse, and they're, they're like, call. Just ask God and, you know, I'm proclaiming that he's going to give me, right? I'm claiming it and naming it and all this crap, right? And that's really not, the context here is important. And what he, he, he tells this parable. Even bad fathers know how to give their kids stuff, right? Even ter- terrible dads do this, right? And so the parable moves from what's called a lesser to the greater argument, right? These guys stink, and they still do it. And God, who doesn't, of course then, he's going to give you good things. He is the ultimate good father. But the pinnacle of this entire section about prayer, look at this, is what? What are we asking for? Who are we at? The Holy Spirit. He says, not God will give you whatever you want. Right? But when you come to God and you ask and you trust that he is the honorable, perfect father. Who's, right? And then when you ask him for the Holy Spirit, he's going to say, cool. All right, that's what this parable is about. The Holy Spirit is the glue that that binds the entire teaching about prayer together. How do you connect with God as your Father from the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? Right, through the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How do you go around the the world and make God's name great? You do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you live as an ambassador for his kingdom? How do you trust God for provision through the Holy Spirit? How do you rest and really... uh, Feel and understand gospel forgiveness, right? Because the Holy Spirit is in you and speaks those things to your heart. How do you forgive other people? That's not a natural human instinct, right? But it is when the Holy Spirit is dwelled within you, right? How do you endure in this life the Holy Spirit? All, the answer to all of these questions is the Holy Spirit. We do things in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own power, And so the context then is God is not saying, here's a blank check to ask for whatever you want. He's not a genie, right? This is the promise that God will send the Spirit to his prayerful people so that they can, as the church, live life in his power. And everything about Jesus' teaching on prayer leads to this moment. Ask for the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones again. No. No. Martin Lloyd Jones says, I don't have the quote here, says this. What prayer does, as it were, is to fill the lungs of the soul with the oxygen of the Holy Spirit and his power. If you want to stand on your feet and not falter, fill yourself with the life of God. That's a great way to summarize this whole teaching, right? Like what oxygen is to your lungs, the Holy Spirit is to your soul. Fill your life with the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning, I said, there's three reasons we don't pray, right? That this text specifically addresses. We don't know how. To pray, we don't know like the method, and again, like I said at the beginning, the encouragement here is you can learn. And you, the way that we pray is the tone of this prayer is pray with humility and dependence on God. Don't come to God and be like, Hey, here's what you should do. That's not how we pray because that doesn't make any sense, right? He is the sovereign Lord of the universe who's holding the entire universe together. We come to Him with humility and dependence, but as we pray, we pray together. Okay, you don't know how to pray. Okay, uh, hang out with us, and uh, we'll do some prayer meetings and some you know hang out with us and pray with us, and you'll you'll pick it up the way the disciples did from Jesus. Right? Nobody's great at this, but together we can be pretty good at it. Right? We can get together and pray. The second thing is we don't know what to pray for. Well, the answer here is really simple. Right? Pray for the Holy Spirit in all of these different areas that He was talking about. Pray for dependence on the Holy Spirit, and then the third thing is. We don't pray a lot because in our minds it slips, and we don't really focus on uh, who it is that we're praying to. And this prayer, this teaching that Jesus gives us on prayer, really is is great in showing us how to pray in um, what we call the fear of the Lord. Right? Pray with this this awe and this reverence that you're talking to the Creator God, the whole the Trinity, who is inviting you back into the dance the dance of the Trinity. That's what we're doing with prayer. And how do we connect, like what's the conduit that we connect to the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. So that's what we pray for. All right, let's, let's spend some time uh, now um, in prayer.